1: Hey everybody, I wanted to tell you about a new all-natural deodorant that's out there. It's called Oh My Gaia. Most commercial brands of deodorant contain a variety of harsh chemicals that are detrimental to your health. Sweating is a very natural process for our body to do that helps get rid of toxins and keeps us cool. So you should probably let that perspiration come through. Like a lot of you, I have tried many all-natural deodorants and all-natural products and had a lot of lackluster experiences. After trying Oh My Gaia, I had my doubts until I was at the airport, flight was delayed, subway was delayed, line was shut down, ride didn't show up, and it took me 12 hours to get to my destination. And when I got there, I didn't stink. I still smelled like Egyptian musk, the scent I chose from Oh My Gaia. Go out to the website, ohmygaia.com, that's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com, and use the promo code PERIPHERAL, P-E-R-I-P-H-E-R-A-L. They also carry beard oil and fragrance oils, so check it out, ohmygaia.com, and use the code PERIPHERAL to get 15% off today. Welcome back to The Peripheral. Today's episode is about statutory rape, which is looked at a little differently than most other sexual assault. Statutory rape revolves around somebody that's of consenting age, engaging in sexual contact with somebody that is not. And with that age gap and that dynamic, it's always a manipulation of the younger person. Uh, statutory rape is one of those subjects that's not talked about enough and is a subject that hits close to home for me. I'm sure most of you remember a situation that happened to me from my episode. There are a lot of different takes on the subject. On this week's episode, I interview three guests, which makes for a much longer episode than usual. So I hope you don't mind. I'll try to put times of each interview in the show notes. Their stories are similar, but have a completely different tone. Everyone deals with situations like this differently. It does get a little graphic. So, without further ado, here is Rosie.
2: I'm Rosie, and I have a podcast with my husband, Ryan, and we're from Voice of the Victim. And we've been doing it for almost six months now. That's been cool. We talk about the victim side of the story. We try to delve into what makes people do what they do and just try to spread awareness about different kinds of abuse.
1: You guys even came on my show for an episode about So You Want to Be a Podcaster. And
2: you know. Yes. Ryan read off some reviews that I have not listened to yet <laughs> <And> <laughs> recorded my response to them and we also had you on our show which is pretty cool yeah
1: i'll tell you right now i don't read reviews anymore i don't go out there because it's just nothing you can do about it it's a review that's about you out in the world and You can't even respond to it, so it's there. and There's nothing you can do, so reading it is sort of pointless, really.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I've just plain out said on our podcast, please don't leave me bad reviews because I'll cry. (laughs) It's been working so far.
1: Yeah, yeah, and same with me. If you leave me a bad review, I'll cry, but I probably won't read it, so I won't cry.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm still working towards not reading them.
1: So you wanted to share a story about yourself and when did this start
2: my abuse started when i it was the summer after i turned 14 and a lot of things i felt kind of added up to my abuse when i was five and a half my brother died and i feel like that was kind of the start of me being vulnerable towards abuse sexual abuse my brother died of epilepsy and we thought we had it under control but when he was two and a half he had a seizure while he was sleeping He died from that seizure. And then after that, my family kind of started not falling apart, but under the surface, you know, trouble was (laughs) forming, I guess you could say. My parents had a lot of trouble getting not back together, but just hanging on together. And from that, I kind of not distanced myself, but I just, I really clung to other family members. And then when I was 14, I latched on to an older man, I guess you could say. (laughs) When I was 14, I went to Valley Fair with some friends. And we were really excited. I was super psyched because my mom and my dad wouldn't be there. (laughs) So I was excited to go with friends without parents around. And that's when I met Max. And he was really cool because he was in his 20s. He was 22, 23 at the time. He was dating one of my friend's friends who I didn't know super well at the time, but she was cool because she was a little older than me. Max is way older than us, and he met up with her that day because her parents weren't around either. So that's the first time I met my abuser, and he was just so cool to me because he's in his 20s. He wanted to hang out with us.
1: Can I just stop Mm -hmm. you there real fast? I know Mm -hmm. when I was 14... any older kid was so cool and you looked up to them and you idolized them and you thought that they had all the coolness in the world because they were old enough to drink, old enough to do whatever.
2: Right. So we were at Valley Fair, and for people who don't know what that is, it's a roller coaster park. It's got roller coasters and there's also a water park, which is where we spent a lot of our time. So I was in my swimsuit and he was kind of flirting and looking at me and I just took it with like, wow, this guy's so cool and he's paying attention to me. After that, I went home. I was on my Facebook page because that was super cool, and that's when Max dinged me a friend request, and I was super psyched to take it because numbers mattered (laughs) at the time, how many friends he had. And from there, he started chatting with me, and at first, it wasn't right away like, hey, I want to do stuff to you. It was just, you're so cool. Man, you look so much older than what you really are, stuff like that. So it was really gradual, I guess. I guess he was grooming. I told him right away that I was 14, so he did know. And I had just graduated middle school. He knew that. A few weeks into him dingy me on Facebook, he accidentally, quote-unquote, accidentally told me that he liked me. And then he just couldn't help it because I was so different. So this is the point where I guess... My story, it changed from, well, from what I, I wasn't innocent, but from no necessarily like wrong, just creepy was happening. And then after that, we started chatting super long into the night. I wouldn't tell my parents anything because this was a secretive thing. My parents totally sensed a change in me. And then I didn't have a phone at the time, so Max showed me how to get a messenger app on my iPod Touch. Just little things like that were happening. My first kiss was with the guy who was eight years older than me. I went to a graduation party and was texting Max about it. We had a relatively the same. We knew people who knew people, and so it was kind of a big group. We had our first kiss I had my first kiss ever in a playground, which is also kind of creepy, at a graduation party, and it was by a slide, and he texted me to meet him there and to pretend I lost my shoe and I had to find it because it was dark, and that's where we first kissed. It was kind of creepy now that I look back at it. Everything was so secretive and I was so excited about having my first boyfriend and I was so mature that he liked me and I must be so special because he would keep telling me that. After that point is where the abuse started. A month after meeting Max, that's probably when he started first asking to come over and spend time with me when my parents were gone. And he knew my schedule. I was trying homeschooling for the first time. And my dad worked away from home and my mom worked a few days from week. And my little brother that was still alive, he was in school. So Max pretty much knew my schedule and he would try to sneak ways into coming over. And I remember the first time he came over, we mostly made out, but he felt me up. I don't know. For me, it was like a first for everything, but he was so eager to find his way around me. That was, I don't know. Now looking back at it, it just, it kind of scares me. That Max was really manipulative. And whenever I had a doubt, he would always be there to make me feel better. He had answers for why everything was okay and why my parents wouldn't understand. So I can't tell anybody. He explained, I can't tell anybody because he's going to go to jail, even though it's so wrong because what we have is true love. And then he started showing me what he wanted from me, sexually mostly. <laughs> he taught me how to give him oral sex and what places felt good to touch him. So yeah, it was it was like that for a year. He would keep me up late at night and then maybe 3 or 4 in the morning, I'd log off my computer and my mom would wake me up at 7:30 to keep me on a school routine. So I was just absolutely exhausted. At that time he started asking me to send him naked pictures of myself or for me to pose in certain ways, which now I have no idea where those pictures are and <laughs> it kind of freaks me out. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. He just had everything planned out, it seemed like. He'd ask me for pictures, he'd meet up with me, and then he'd buy me a stuffed animal or give me a, one of his sweatshirts, gift me things. It was just, it seemed like he knew what he was doing. And since he knew my schedule, he started wanting to pick me up. And he would take me in his car to an abandoned, well, not abandoned, but a parking lot that was pretty secluded. And then he'd talk me into doing more sex acts with him. So this was the line. This was my routine, but I never went to his house because he would always want to take me there, but I was just kind of freaked out about going to Minneapolis with him because I just, I don't know where I'm going anyways now. I'm very directionally challenged. So I was scared to leave my city and go to Minneapolis with him where he lived.
1: So you kind of had a safety bubble where you wouldn't leave your own town and you wouldn't want to go far away. and be at his house where he would have total control. So you had at least that going for you?
2: Yeah. I was just, if something was to happen, I'd have no idea how to get home. So I would get really confused. Sometimes late at night, he would go out drinking with his friends and he'd be messaging me drunk. And I'd be so upset because I was like, I'm 14. I'm giving up my sleepovers and I'm not hanging out with my friends anymore for him to stay up late and Skype and message and sext him. But he was going out and getting drunk at bars with his buds. It was a really, it was rough, but he would sense my worry. And that's when he started to propose to me, like on a weekly basis. I don't know why, just to get me to shut up. So I, I've been proposed to many, many times. But he would promise this happy marriage with kids and a happily ever after. And I don't know why, but a house underneath a waterfall. And the plan was for me to pretend to meet him for the first time when I was 17 and then go from there and that my parents would absolutely adore him because he knew how to smooth talk that's what he would say
1: do you think that he really cared about you or do you think this was all just for show to have this sexual relationship
2: i think it was a little bit of both i know he was he had a couple of other girls that were my around my age that he was dating and intimate with too so i i don't know a part of me thinks that You know, maybe he did care, but at the same time, he knew what he was doing was wrong because he would tell me, can't talk to this person, can't tell my friends, can't tell my parents. So I think he did use me for sexual favors, but I also think that he at some point cared. I don't know. It's such a hard thing to say, I guess. Yeah, that's a tough question, but he knew what he was doing was wrong. It's
1: so obvious and even he has to admit it.
2: Right. And also the fact that he wanted pictures in different poses makes me wonder what he was doing with those photos, if those ever got to other people, which I will never know. But I think they definitely had some some things that he wanted from me. I didn't really care how he got them. But yeah, so our relationship, it went on to exactly one year. And I was allowing Max to come over to my house It was a morning that my mom had to work and my dad was working. My brother was at school and or my brother, I don't know where he was because I was in summertime. But anyways, my parents have been really worried about me because I was acting really weird and I was pretty secluded from my family. But I invited Max over and my mom, for some reason, she got a call from work that they didn't need her that day. So she was going to be home hours earlier than I thought. And she opened the front door and she saw Max on top of me. And it was crazy intense. That was our one-year anniversary. And Max told me he was going to do something special to me. And he was going to give me my present, but I was super disappointed because there was no box or bag. So I I don't know. I think that because he had only wanted oral sex and fingering and feeling up, stuff like that, he didn't want regular sex for me. I don't know if that was to be safe in case we ever got caught, but I have a feeling that that's what was going to happen that day because it was going to be really special. So he kept saying. So mom found him on top of me. I had an attic bedroom, so I had stairs going up to my room. And she opened my door and she said, hey, Rosie. But she saw him on top of me on my stairs. It was rough because Max instantly jumped. He grabbed his stuff Mom started throwing his shoes at him, just yelling, absolutely bloody murder. They had seen this guy around and they had warned him. He, they warned him to stay away from me because I, I, they didn't know I liked him, but they were concerned that he was around our friend group. And so they had heard about this guy. Mom is sewing shoes. She's calling the cops. She comes up to me and slaps me. <laughs> And I run to the kitchen and I grab a knife and I'm going to kill myself. It was just like a lifetime movie moment, I guess. That's what I think of when I look back at it. I'm holding a kitchen chef's knife and I'm about to like, I don't know what I was going to do, maybe slice my wrist. I I don't know where I was. I wasn't me. And my mom bear hugs me and takes the knife away. And from there, police were at my house. My dad was called home and it was just, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy.
1: Were your feelings at that time because you thought that you loved him and you were in trouble or just it was madness and you just couldn't deal with it all?
2: Well, I was I was so tired at this time. And I I sometimes I wanted to leave Max, but he would say, you know, like he's gonna kill himself if I ever leave because I'm the only thing that's right in his life. And it was so much pressure. I was I felt so suffocated at some points. And then all of a sudden, my mom's bursting through the door, something I never, you know, I should have expected at some point it was going to happen. And I, I kind of did, but not that day. And I messed up because mom came home. She found me and Max. Max is going to kill himself or he's going to blame me for his life being ruined. And I was I was just done, I guess. Yeah, some days I was in love with him and some days I forgot his name because I was so tired. <laughs> There's just so much going on at 14, 15. But I had a lot of police visits after that. My parents were very they were ready to take him to court, and they did. they took his laptop. the police investigated it. He served jail time. yeah, it was it was a lot. but the I think the hardest part about the whole thing was that so many of my friends pulled away from me because it was like I it was like fake rape. statutory to me is such a touchy subject because I wasn't physically attacked bleeding or hurt it was like I was ratting out one of the cool kids or
1: it's hard to explain because you don't want to use the word consensual because you're being manipulated Mm -hmm. by an older person but you did do it you chose to do it but Mm -hmm. you're you don't have any power when you're that age
2: Right. Yeah. I just, I felt like everyone hated me for getting Max busted. And I genuinely was upset when he was, when it was found out. I was genuinely upset at my parents for calling the police because I didn't believe I was raped for a second because I never screamed out in pain or anything. Like you said, I was, I wanted to do it. But the truth is statutory rape is so much about manipulation and deceit. And Max just found a way to be the complete center of my life because every day circled around him and what he needed. And he just, he managed to control my doubts and what I thought and that everything was okay. So yeah, I guess I wanted to share my story because statutory rape is important. It's important to know that it's happening and that it's not okay. After my ordeal, I spent many, many hours in therapy. My mom rushed me to Florida, actually, because there was a really good therapist there. They were really worried about me committing suicide for a while, and which is not like me. I've never cut myself or I've never been one to want to end my life. So it was just, it was a rough time. But in the end, Max did serve some time. So
1: how long did he get? What was his punishment?
2: He only, I remember right, he served three months in jail, and then he was, he had to, what's the word I'm looking for? He was a, a sexual predator. He had to um, register as a sexual offender for as a eight years, and he's on probation right now. He still is not done with that, and so that's been eight years going on, nine years. I had a restraining order against him until I was 18. Not that I wanted one at the time, but my parents got that, and he had mandatory Therapy sessions for sexual offenders, he had to complete a class or two or something like that. But he still has to have, he's supposed to have supervision around children under the age of 16. I have no idea if that's happening, but, but it was something. The other girls that he abused weren't in the same state as me, so their stories didn't really do much, and they didn't really want to talk about it, so...
1: Three months is not easy. Probation and registering as a sex offender is not an easy thing. I don't know what is an appropriate sentence for him. The fact that he's had to register, that means the world to me. Because if anyone has any semblance to do any background check on him, that should show up. And hopefully negate him from doing something like this ever again. That's all we can hope for.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do remember my parents completely stripped me of all my electronics. <laughs> but I do remember finding my iPod Touch and I really quick, I went on there and went on our messaging app and I texted him and said, are you okay? I'm so, so sorry for what happened and I love you and, and this. And all that I received on the other end was whatever you do, just say this was our first time meeting. And that was it. <laughs> he's just saving his ass. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was like the, the tiniest turning point to me that, okay, that's what this is to you. And I didn't, I completely vomited up like everything that happened pretty within the first couple of weeks. So that was upsetting. Well,
1: and I think that goes back to when I asked, do you think he was in love with you or just manipulating you? Well, if he's able to turn on a dime like that, then it shows a lot of manipulation and for himself and not for anyone else.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It took me a long time to see myself as a victim of statutory rape or the word rape in general is so harsh. And I still struggle with a lot of guilt because so many other people have gotten brutally injured and raped. And here I am with my statutory story. But I just, I don't think it's right to be ashamed of statutory rape and what the effects of it and how it happens. And I just hope that sharing My story helps people with similar experiences deal with their own. I've never really told my story. I've never, well, since we started our podcast, I had once, but since before that, I never wanted to talk about it. I never really felt like it was deserved to be told because I was so unsure and guilty about it and that people would judge and complain about how unworthy I am calling myself a victim or a survivor, but it's just, it's time to let it out. Because it's been building up inside for eight years, and I just want people to know.
1: Yeah. And I mean, really, we're adults now. We're not those same kids that you Mm -hmm. were around when you were 14 that can be so Mm -hmm. dismissive and just deassociate with the problem that actually happened. Because at the time, you're thinking, oh, this guy's so cool. He's older. But now you Mm -hmm. look at a 20-something-year-old anyone hanging out with a 14-year-old. Right. And you you see how pathetic and gross and statutory that is. It's just, it's a maturity level and your story is definitely worth sharing. If anyone thought, oh, this isn't rape or if this isn't worth saying, well, that just shows that they're still in that immature mentality and they don't get it.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, I just, you know, I'm 24 now. Max was around my age, 23, 24, when he decided that I was the one for him. and me being twenty four, I am looking at a fourteen year old. I am just like gross. I don't want that. <laughs> so it, it definitely it did help me see things clearly once I got a little older. This is wrong. This is a little messed up.
1: I was thirteen and she was twenty or twenty one. I think she was twenty one. And I look at thirteen year olds now, and I just think, what on earth would anyone that's mm-hmm. eight, eighteen and up want to do with anyone that's two or more years younger than them? Doesn't make sense.
2: Right. So I guess to finish up my story, I have not talked to Max since that day my mom found us. I am tempted to get in contact with him to get his side of the story (laughs) or just ask him, you know, one of the thousand questions that I think of every now and then. But I realize that's probably not a good idea. The last time I did see him was in court and all I could see was just hatred in his eyes. As the court official read off the letters that my family and I wrote for the court to hear about what had happened. So I just hope that this story it's for all victims out there, rape or statutory rape. And I hope people know that you don't need to show blood to be hurt and you don't need to you don't need to bleed to be hurting pretty much.
1: Thank you, Rosie, so much for sharing your story. If you guys haven't listened to Voice of the Victim, please check it out. My next guest, Kara, her story is a little longer, but there's a lot more moving parts to it. And she explains the chain of events that might have led her to be with an older man. Oh, how you doing?
3: Hey, I'm good. Excited to talk to you. I'm, you know, a little nervous, as I'm sure most people are. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to share my story. Like anything that you put out there, I hope that it might help somebody the same way that a lot of your stories have helped me and other people have talked and, you know, little things that you might connect on that might not have the whole bigger picture of the same story, but, you know, different things. So it's been... Real pleasure listening to your podcast. And um, just thank you for doing this little side project because it's (laughs) really
1: cool. No problem. I just keep going. (laughs) I just keep (laughs) going put it out there. Uh, Just trying to help others is my my goal, really.
3: My name is Kara. And um, when I was younger, I was in a relationship with a boy that was a little bit older than me. You know, when you look at age and certain standpoints in life, things get a little bit easier. When you're a 38-year-old dating a 34-year-old, that's not a problem. No. When you're (laughs) even a 24-year-old dating a 20-year-old, that's really not a problem. But as you get going down in the age ranges, it does seem a little bit
1: weirder. Absolutely.
3: When you think about somebody that's over the age of consent dating someone that's Under the age of consent, depending on what state you're in, you know, it tends to get a little on the 50-50 side. Some people think it's okay. Some people are like completely disgusted with it. You know, I haven't divulged this information to many people, but I remember when you did um, your interview with the captain, you know, he said something like um, he felt like he needed to tell every person that he was with. And I used to be like that. Then I stopped and you stop thinking about it, you know, and it stops being a present in your mind, you know, until you meet somebody that you really care about. And maybe you would want to tell all your secrets, too, but you don't. Because it's stuff like this that you just might not want to say because you don't want to, you know, fuck shit up.
1: <laughs> I was talking about uh, oversharing. The other day yeah in, in the facebook group and stuff and how i think it's great that people overshare because you'll hear maybe some detail or something that tells you that you're not a weirdo because somebody else was thinking it or doing it too but at the same time oversharing puts out all of those skeletons in your closet into the public and uh it can come back and bite you.
3: <laughs> yes. And some people say, you know, if you want to be in an open, loving relationship, that the other person should know every single thing about you. And I've learned that that's not necessarily the best way to go about things. There's just some things that maybe you just want to keep to yourself. You know, it's sometimes, okay, keep a little mystery you know keep some things to yourself and i think that's totally okay and totally cool sometimes just that pushes people away whether they might not realize it or not but it it totally does and everyone is judgmental whether you think that they love you 100 percent or not people are judgmental and that might scar something
1: you know yeah i mean it's it's that balance of they might be the perfect person for you but if you tell them this one single detail, possibly just in the wrong tone or the wrong way.
3: Yeah. And the perfect person for you now, you know, like who you are right now, not who you've been because all this crap is in the past yeah. and it builds who you are. So anyways, yeah. so <laughs> sure you probably want me to get to the point.
1: No, you're fine. You're fine.
3: So I was in a relationship with a guy that was four years older than yeah. me. And that might not sound like a big deal, but, um. I was fourteen, and he was eighteen. By the time we, well, I think we had a sexual relationship before I turned fourteen, but that was when we officially were in said relationship. I met him when I was twelve. My best friend at the time, their family owned a orchard, and um, her older sister boyfriend had a younger brother. And they both started working at the orchard and they had like a little fruit stand there and it was right at their house. So we begged her dad to let us work there. So in agriculture, you can actually get employed when you're 12. So (laughs) we were employees Mm -hmm. and he put us on the books and we just worked at our house, like on the weekends, we didn't really go down the other farm ever. And, um, you know, I noticed him a couple of times. We both thought the sister's boyfriend was like absolutely to die for, you know. Things just progressed. Thought nothing of it. Just totally a dream. He would be there, and we would talk, and you know, it was just nothing, yeah. really. What I thought. He would buy his cigarettes because you know he was older, and the gas <laughs> station across the street didn't an him. <laughs> and um, you know, the flirtation, but nothing. That was. Like my eighth grade year on um, January of 1998 so it was like middle of eighth grade for me my dad passed away he and my mom had been divorced for a long time. My mom really never wanted to talk about him. no one really did. He did a lot of shitty things like say he was gonna show up for an Easter dinner and never showed up and you know, it was constantly, like, getting hopes up and just having them fall. This is how old it was. This was, like, in 1988. So computers were coming out in the classrooms. We had to write a letter to somebody. So I decided to write a letter to my dad. I really don't know why. I think I was kind of starting to go on a depression in that state. And I found out his address for my aunt, and I mailed it out. And we started a correspondence. Through my aunt, like not through my mom. Mm-hmm. She didn't want us or him to know where we lived for some reason. I'm not quite sure. We started correspondence. Started out great. Um, I was really excited. And at Christmas of 97, my grandmother and grandfather told me that for February vacation of that school year, they were going to take me to Arizona. And go see my dad with them. I was ecstatic Like I could not believe it And he actually called on the phone At my aunt's house And after talking to my mom She let me talk to him And it was just a lot of crying You know Him saying I love you Me not really understanding What was happening mm. You know that was it I was going to go see him in February Stoked like I was psyched Me and my mom weren't getting along that well at the time. Like I really needed somebody that wasn't my mom, you know, that was my parent to talk to. And then in January, right before February vacation, my mom sat us down on the couch and just said, your dad passed away last night. I was just, what, what do you mean? And she was really shady. <laughs> she just said it was a car accident and he just, he died. I'm really sorry. I said, okay. The thing with that is that there was a dance the night after, like an eighth grade dance on a Friday night. And I was going to spend the night over at my friend's house. And my mom called the Girl's mom and the girl, like we all did at that time, picked up the phone and listened in on the conversation. And my mom told the girl's mom, I'm really sorry, but I have to tell her that her dad passed away and she's not going to be able to come over tomorrow night. She didn't end up telling this to me. So I went to school, and that girl told everybody that she knew that my dad died, and I had no idea. So, I remember that day, like, everyone being super weird, not, like, totally awkward. Like, I was like, what's going on, you know? Okay, like, did I do something that like, makes someone really mad? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's eighth grade dynamics. Who knows? But it was so awkward that day. And then after I told that one, like, another friend that after I had found out, she was like, oh, yeah, we all already know. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean you already know? She said, yeah, well, you know, so-and-so was listening to the conversation with your mom, with her mom on the phone that you probably won't be able to sleep over. So. And I just, that was like another wave of emotion that was hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. Okay, everyone knows this thing about me, and I have no clue. So I'll put premise to something that happens later in my life with this guy. Mm -hmm. So back to the little apple orchard. (laughs) It's so funny thinking about it now. It was like this little stupid apple orchard farm stand. It was the summer between 8th grade and my freshman year of high school. I ended up moving to this town um after, you know, my mom got divorced and it was very different. So that summer like I worked all the time. Anyone didn't want to work, I would work for them, you know. So he worked there too all the time and We got close, you know, it wasn't, I don't think at that time, I just thought he was way out of my league. And I didn't think a lot of it. I was about to be a freshman in high school. I was excited about what that, you know, was going to bring for me. And he was going to be a senior in high school. And I remember seeing him my first day. and He was like, hey, anyone messes with you, you know, let me know. Because it was that kind of relationship at first kind of big brother you know I um start kind of like hanging out with this guy that was also a senior he was like real punk rock like leather jacket with the um patches with the safety pins on it he had a mohawk for a while um, excuse if I'm like vulgar or something but you know he would come over and kind of like dry hump me in your skinny jeans and (laughs) you know it was like that was that but I really was like oh my god like this guy likes me and then I found out he was doing that with another girl too um so that's when this other guy kind of came into play because oh my god I can't believe that he did that to you and you know then it kind of progressed a little bit it got a little intense for a little bit. Like he would, now looking back at now, like it just sounds so gross to me. He did do that thing. And I think it was one of your other podcasts that someone said that their grocery store manager did this to them, but they would stand at the register behind me. But I didn't think it was really that creepy at that time because, he, you know, like he was older, but It wasn't like a father, man, you know, or someone that could have been my dad. It was just like a cool older guy.
1: Later on in life, when you grow up, you're like, oh, that's a little cringeworthy. But at the time, you're just thinking, whatever, it's a guy I like.
3: That is 100% correct. Thinking about this, thinking about talking to you, I had to do like a 180 to be like, whoa, cut the brakes. That's creepy as fuck. But like, and I don't want to paint him out as that picture because at that time it wasn't like that. Or at least I didn't feel like it was like that. We started kissing in the walking cooler. He had dated two other girls in high school and they were both girls that I considered to be way above my caliber pretty they were you know they had some money they were like cool girls and why would this guy like me needless to say my mom kind of caught wind at the time of what was going on because i'd be like oh he'll give me a ride home after work and she'd be like no i'm gonna come pick you up yeah (laughs) okay (laughs) you know like obviously I mean, imagine I'm 13 years old. So I'm like, oh, well, I can't give my kiss goodbye. Like this is the end of the world. But there's plenty of times though, too, where she had such a busy schedule because she was a single mom. She'd be like, fine, someone can pick you up and bring you home. Or I just tell her that my friend's dad was going to get me right home. Or even one of the workers that worked there, you know, on the fields give me a ride home. She was cool with that. But if I said that this guy was going to give me a ride home, she'd be like, I'll you know, find a way to come get you or someone to come get you. Like I said, I was really mad at my mom at the time because of shit with my dad and just, I didn't understand relationships. I didn't understand yeah. why they would get divorced or why she wouldn't, fight harder to, you know, fix the shit that was going on with him. Like I, I didn't, I had no way to comprehend that. It was her fault. She's the only one left standing. So it's her fault. You know?
1: It's, you're not old enough to understand. You don't have any wisdom yet. And she has her reasons that she's not going to even try to justify (laughs) with a 14 year old.
3: Absolutely. Why would she have to, you know, (laughs) like, you know, I'm 34 now. So I have a lot more wisdom than I did back then. So when I realized that she was obviously going to have a problem with this, I just hit it so well. So what I would do is I would go hang out with somebody. And then instead of going home, I'd be like, oh, just drop me off here. And, you know, half the time they knew that, you know, what was going on and they'd be like, okay, that was pretty much it. By the time I went home, my mom was either working nights a lot of that time. So she had already left for work and I'd already lied to her. <laughs> I was sneaky. I will say I was sneaky. I came up with a lot of plans throughout this whole thing. That was pretty inventive.
1: I would have my friends pose as each other's parents and say, I'm spending the night at their house and they're spending the night at my house. And then we go do the old, you know, whatever. <laughs>
3: yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend. We would absolutely do that because she was dating a guy that was our age. But <laughs> we had the same thing. Our parents would never question each other because we had been doing that for so long. It just wasn't a thing to question. It'd been weird if my mom called her house and be like, "Is she there?" You know, and be like, mm, "Okay." But I did end up losing my virginity to him when I was 13. It was in October. My birthday's in November. I was very young for whatever grade I was in. I was always like the youngest person in the class or the second youngest. Like it was, I think I was in high school. We had a really, really small high school, like 400 kids total. I was the second youngest in my class. I was 13 years old when I was in the ninth grade in high school, when a lot of kids are like 15 and 14. Mm -hmm. I did lose my virginity to him in October when I was 13 and it did take a little talking to you know like I I don't and this is like when the cringeworthy part comes into me that like looking back on it now is so cringy you know we had talked about it like it wasn't something that it was forced on me it was like tell me when you're ready type of thing which I think is <laughs> kind of even more manipulative because you know that that's what that person wants and you just have to say those magic words and that's totally what happened um and it did and you know it's like any girl i think that loses her virginity it's not the same as a guy
1: it's usually not that uh enjoyable for the female <laughs> no
3: <laughs> it's more to please Thumbnail that you're with. So that happened and he didn't go away. It's not like that's just all that he wanted and he left. We had a relationship. Eventually, I told my mom and I kind of just told her that she had to be okay with it. And I know that sounds really weird. I had my mom at the point where my sister now a freshman in college. I'm the only one left. I'm a pain in her fucking ass. She is divorced. She has a boyfriend. She's trying to live her best life too, you know? Not too, but she's trying to move on with her life. I'm gonna be at it for her soon too. And I, I, I broke her down. I mean, I did. There was a lot of fighting, a lot of screaming, a lot of, I think I pushed her one time. I was out of control and I was enraged because I blamed her for everything that happened in my life. Why we weren't as rich as my other friends, because she had to divorce my dad. And we had money when we were growing up. We had a very nice house, but she had divorced my dad. And I didn't know half of the stuff. I didn't know 95% of the stuff I know now about my father that I totally have a great relationship with my mom now because I get it. And I get why she did the things that she did. But no one tells a little kid yeah. the intimate details of a relationship which would lead in a divorce. I just heard that dad left and he was gone and then my mom divorced him and he took all of our money and that's why we're like this right now because of your father
1: you're resentful and you're looking for a way to rebel you're looking for uh even possibly a father figure you're there's all kinds of aspects to that that you're not going to even know you're doing
3: absolutely i was pissed i absolutely hated her Like, and I, even before my dad died, we were not getting along. And because the place that I lived was really weird. Like parents were really lenient with their kids. And
1: I'm a little older than you. And uh, yeah, yeah. I I got free reign to do whatever I wanted. And (laughs) and all my friends did too. So it was a different world back then.
3: So um, we actually, I lost my virginity in my bedroom at my home. I don't know where my mom was. And we just started having a full-on sexual relationship. You're talking about like a 17-year-old guy. I know what 17-year-old guys are like now. Like they are
1: into sex.
3: And I mean, we would have sex on pretty much every encounter.
1: Typical. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're a teenager. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Like you said, like, it wasn't enjoyable for me. Like, what I learned from those times were to get him satisfied. And that would be like a go me. Yeah, I did it. All right. Yes. (laughs) All right. I'm good at this. You know, because I had literally no idea what sex was.
1: And neither did he really, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes.
3: Yes we, we did though have like an emotional relationship. And that's when a father figure in my life, really, he started to replace that for me. He was protective of me. He was basically everything that was my world at that time. I mean, there is nothing else. Mm -hmm. But surrounding when I was going to see him, when we're going to talk, when we're going to do this, when we're going to do that. And um, his mom was there a lot of the times when she was home. it would just be like, hi. She'd be like, hi. And that was it. We never
1: talked. It was
3: weird. (laughs) Super weird.
1: So you started this when you were 12 to 13 years old. And now you're getting into 14, 15 years old. Just this is like years of this relationship.
3: Yeah. I mean, I met him when I was 12, 13, but we didn't start really a relationship till I was like 14. That point, he was 17, just turned 18. So there was a four year gap between us pretty much at all times. Which is significant, I think, now. And I think this happens to a lot of people. It's not just where I'm from. People just don't like to talk about things mm-hmm. that are confrontational. People just want to pull the blanket up and go back under the sheets and just kind of just never confront anything.
1: So, no one there is starting a podcast called The Peripheral, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
3: But no one's asking any questions. Mm-hmm. It was just, let's just pretend this isn't happening. But it was all happening.
1: I had a similar situation growing up where, uh, you know, my mom would find condoms in my bedroom and I would tell her they were for water balloons or something. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) You know, it's just, yeah. You
3: know, it's like weird shit like that. Like, she just never said to me. Like, she didn't want a confrontation. So it was just... She was real, real easy just to tell her what she wants to hear and that's it.
1: She's not paying attention. Mm -mm. She's got her own stuff.
3: (laughs) She probably just wanted me out of the house. So, you know, it's what it is. So, like I said, we were in a sexual relationship. It was a lot more than that. He was somebody that i could talk to about the issues i was having with my mom and my dad thinking about my dad and i was learning stuff about my dad and my dad's death and i was trying to process it because like i said i wasn't really told the truth up front i got a letter from my aunt he died in january it was post, he died January 8th. It was postmarked like January 2nd or 3rd. It was just a letter in an envelope. They had no idea what was inside this letter. Just full of this stuff that explains so much now that I know what I know. It's basically like a letter that says, nothing was my fault. Nothing was my sister's fault. Nothing was my mom's fault. It was his fault. He has been living with this guilt for all of these years. We hope now that we can find some peace. Um, Basically, it's a letter that he wrote knowing that he was going to die.
1: But I thought it was an accident. That's what they
3: told me. That's the funny part. That's what they told me. Um, That was a car accident. That's all I heard. It was a car accident. It's a haunting letter. It's a letter that I can only read sometimes, like, and as I've grown older and reading it over and over, it's given me a little solace. But there were times, like in my 20s, that the only time I could read that letter was if I would get, like, As drunk as I could possibly can, and then open it up and read it. And found out that he um, had had a cocaine addiction since when I was in elementary school, when cocaine was cool in the 80s. Then, unfortunately, and this like pains me to say this, but he started smoking crack. He started smoking crack. No one wants to tell people oh yeah my dad was a crackhead that stigma alone is like devastating um but apparently what happened is that he was all fucked up even though he had told everyone he was okay my aunt thinks that he had gone on a relapse after the holidays and unfortunately she said after talking to you (laughs) which i don't think she meant to Put it that way to me. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But it was just saying like after he had talked to me and obviously he had felt some sense of guilt and got fucked up. He went to a bar, he got really 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 drunk. He left without paying the bill. He walked across the street, walked on the interstate, and got hit by a truck. So. That's a lot different than your dad dying in a car accident. And I mean, I hadn't seen my dad in years. I was about to see him the next month for the first time that I had seen him in over a decade. I mean, I was ecstatic. I told all my friends, I'm like 13 years old, 12 years old at that time. That was like, like a badass, like, yeah, I'm going to move to Phoenix with my dad. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I knew nothing about him, I knew nothing about his life. Like, I just thought I was screw this. I'm going to get away from here. So, circling back to this guy, I needed somebody like that in my life that was going to be there for me. I didn't have a shoulder to cry on. I know that sounds so sad. My mom was so very stiff about the situation. She wasn't emotionally there for me. My sister hated my dad. She never wanted to talk about it. So I was legit alone with millions of emotions that I didn't know what to deal with. And then after I met this guy and, you know, started this relationship with him, I felt comfortable that I could start to tell him these little tricklets about my life and what i was feeling and there was nothing but love and support and talk as long as you want and you know i'm here for you and that type of emotional support that i was not getting at home at all from anybody yeah and like i said i'm not gonna tell my friends that my dad like smoked crack. Like, I, I didn't know what, what the to do.
1: I wouldn't have told anyone at that time. I I'm sure I, I don't I don't know all the things about my biological father, but I know he was a, a big time drug user and dealer and uh that's not something you just go around telling people. I get it.
3: No. And unless he's like Pablo Escobar or like yeah. something, you know. Yeah. It's like just wanting what everyone else around me had, which was two parents, a family, dinner on the table by six. I was cooking like lean cuisine dinners, like in my microwave because my mom wasn't home, you know, and that's what she would beat me. <laughs> and that was okay. But like, what do you, what do you do when you're that age and you've got an emotional crisis and, you know, you're not just gonna be sitting around doing your homework we had a relationship for like i said about a year then he started to like get a little weird with stuff um, this is when i was 15 and he was 19 at the time he bought me a dildo i did not know what to do with the dildo it was pink I didn't really know what it was for, and obviously it wasn't for, like, I know those, you know, things now that, like, hey, I'm done, but let's still, you have fun, it vibrates and whatever. You know, it was, it was awkward, and he started getting, like, really obsessed with anal sacs. Right. I'm sorry.
1: I just... It's just sort of weird that that's where he goes, you know?
3: Well, the point of buying the dildo was that he could start to, like... I'm going to get graphic, but...
1: Well, I... He was, like... I I know what the point was. It was to (laughs) get you ready for it, essentially. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Yes. So that I could be prepared. And... But, uh, like I said, like, I i didn't enjoy it i just enjoyed it because he enjoyed it Mm -hmm. and i was so emotionally attached to him so it was just like okay all right yeah whatever you want you know like i just want to please you it sounds so creepy now that i'm saying that um (laughs) he like tried to have me watch some porn with him it wasn't like anal porn (laughs) like really now that i'm older like the porn that he Happy watch was like like a showtime like softcore. Oh, like
1: okay yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's sort of a contrast to like what he's it, suggesting and pushing on you but yeah <laughs>
3: exactly and I was like oh okay so so it happened it happened I did it I don't know what I was feeling back then I'm sure just feeling that i did this to please this person that i love so much then the video camera came in and we're talking still like back in the day so it's not like it's an iphone or anything it's like a straight up video camera on a tripod there was a couple times a couple different instances and he would film it, but like I wasn't even like aware of the camera. Like I don't even know if I knew all the times that he filmed because it was set up in his room for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it was I guess cause I mean I know what I know now. So I guess in that age I wasn't that worried about it because I really thought it was for him. Yeah. You know? Like it was just private.
1: Now in retrospect you're realizing that he's <laughs> technically making kitty porn. So yeah. Yeah,
3: absolutely. I guess there was a tape and <laughs> they used to do like God, backyard wrestling. Yeah, Remember when yeah. people used to do that? <laughs> like people beating themselves up like over like folding tables and stuff like in the backyard. So they used to film that a lot on this camera to do like their backyard wrestling moves. Basically what happened was I got a call from a girl. That was in my grade and her older brother was friends with this guy she had had the conscious enough to go home and tell her that i think that you need to tell her that we just all saw this video oh, of her geez. with a pink dildo up her ass so she called me i remember getting that call and saying like oh okay and hanging up <laughs> cuz i didn't know how to react
1: what the fuck were you supposed to say i,
3: mean, just... <laughs> I don't know i don't know <sighs> so
1: i'm i'm glad you're kind of giggling and laughing about it now oh, because it's of just like like what do you do you know just
3: like i said it didn't break the internet it's not something that Thank God it was in the age of technology of the age it was in, that it wasn't, you know, Snapchatted like 18 times over to everybody, you know, wasn't, wasn't able to be recorded while someone, you know, was watching it. It it was. It
1: could only go so Um, far, but it's still pretty humiliating. Yeah.
3: Yes. But that's what I'm saying. I can laugh about it now because I'm like, oh my God, thank God that happened to me then and not now. That would have been, I can't imagine do people that this type of scenario would happen to them. Nowadays, I mean, I guess it was a group of guys that were looking for this stupid, uh, they called it white trash wrestling. God.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember. <laughs>
3: so, oh, like a bunch of kids used to do it. I don't know why, but I mean, whatever. You guys will be guys. Do what you do. And It was mislabeled because you know you could tape over shit and whatever. They put it in and it was this video and apparently it was all a mistake and no one was supposed to see it and he wasn't home and it was just all a big misunderstanding because I got really upset and something just seemed fishy about it to me and then I did hear a conflicting story from one girl that was there and she kind of felt the need. I wasn't even friends with her and she felt the need to come find me and say, no, he was there and he put it in and he bragged about it. And the fact that she would have no reason to lie really resonated with me. Being the kid that I am, I'm like, no, so-and-so told me that you were there and you did it. And it was, oh no, she's in love with me and she's just so jealous that this happened. So she just, she's lying. That's not what happened. I didn't know what to think. I was really, really torn. I was really, really angry. I just felt like this person that I then emulated this father figure into, you know, that was like my confidant, my trust, my everything. Like would betray me like that and even though he's saying no there was a couple other people too that kind of said yeah he knew that this was happening and he didn't stop it i decided that you know what fuck you no no i was so humiliated A lot of these guys were seniors in the high school or had just graduated. So it was only like one or two guys that were like still in my high school and one or two guys that were like my friend's brothers that like never went to college. So I would see them when I went to their houses and stuff to hang out. Luckily, I really wasn't ever like teased about it too much. I do remember one time we were at a party and like a couple of those like loser guys that had already graduated came to a high school party and (laughs) one of them said, Oh, because you love the color pink. And I just, I didn't have a reaction. And I think that's what kind of helped me. I wasn't upset. So he couldn't tease me more Mm -hmm. and I didn't even laugh. I just kind of like, look, gave him a look. And I think that that was kind of the tone then when that subject came up. And I don't think that made me feel any better because I didn't want anyone to feel bad for me at all. Yeah. That almost made it a little bit worse because I was just like, oh, you know, like, okay, just emulating my mom. Like, we I mean, just not talk about it. That would be great. Put it in the box. Put it in the box put it in the box i'll deal with it later i'll deal with it later i'll deal with it later i was so still mad about that videotape and i didn't really bring it up to him for a while and i really let it lay under the rug but the more i thought about it the more i festered and i remembered that i just went to this girl's house and i know one of her brothers had watched it and he was looking at me in the kitchen and like I just felt like I was naked. I felt so disgusting. And I honestly thought that he was disgusting. So that made it so much worse. This guy that I would never to even be like in a bathing suit in front of, had seen a dildo up my butt. And I'm gonna be standing here in front of him having a conversation With his sister and his mother in their kitchen. I finally did really confront him about it. And I told him that I was just going to go to high school, that I didn't want this relationship anymore, that I was very sorry. At that time, it was like he was way more emotionally invested in me than I needed him anymore. Like he had helped me through that stuff that I need to get through. He's kind of taught me how to grow from there and now he's wronged me. After that happened, I told him that I just, I didn't want to see him anymore. Yeah. And I think something changed too in the fact that like, he was my father figure. It's not like he wasn't like allowing me to do stuff, but then like, I was gonna rebel from him too. Yeah.
1: How did he take it?
3: That's interesting. That's an interesting question. Um, because I got a a call. He was like, yeah, I'm going out, but you left a bunch of stuff at my house. I'm going to leave it on my doorstep. Come pick it up. So I had my friend come pick me up. So nothing was on the front porch. So I went inside like I always did. I mean, it was so comfortable being there. No one was there. So I went to his room, and there was my stuff and a note, and an envelope it had my name on it. And there was an envelope with his brother's name on it. And there was an envelope with his mom's name on it. So I got my shoes, my other stuff, talked to him in my shoes, opened it up. And long story short, it basically just said, like, fuck you. I'm going to go kill myself. I'm at the first place that you and I ever, like, kissed or something stupid like that. And I couldn't even figure it out. And he, he had guns. And he had a gun safe in his room the entire time I was dating him. And it was left open. And it was never open. I didn't know what to do. I knocked on his mom's bedroom door. I handed her her note with her name on it. And I just said, I don't know what to do. I mean, I didn't know what to do. I was on, I called his brother, was on the phone. was kind of like talking to both of them at the same time. And he was just like, I'm on it. I'm on it. Just go. Get the fuck out of here as far away possible as you can. I was like, uh, okay. Got my shoes. I think I left the note there. And And I left. I remember calling his brother a little bit later. Cause like I was concerned, but I wasn't that concerned. Like I said, like I'm a kid and this shit's just like way too much for me to handle. And his brother is just like, yeah, I got him. He's fine. He's okay.
1: I mean, it's still a serious so, situation though.
3: Yeah. Well then later he calls me and is like, yeah, I'm sitting here on like a park bench in a, ball field with the, you know, gun in my mouth. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like the weird thing that happened is that I just said, okay. And I'm one of those people that just said, do what you gotta do. Because I could not have the emotional grasp of what to do in that situation. And I did not know the answer. And his brother's telling me he's okay. And he's, fuck you. I'm just like, okay, fuck me. Like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Like, I, I don't know what else to do right now, but just like go home, do what you gotta do. Not saying like, do what you gotta do, like kill yourself, but like, you know, do what you gotta do to like, relax. Like, okay, like I will get out of your life. I was in shock. He did not talk to me. I know he was still alive. He didn't do anything. It was all a ploy to get me to come back because he felt guilt about what happened. But um, no, it wasn't (laughs) until I um, moved down to Florida about 10 years ago. Loved it. Very therapeutic. He contacted me and we hadn't talked ever. Like We never talked after I was supposed to go to his house. I was weary and I was like, hey, you know, we talked and we just talked like two friends that were just really emotionally invested in each other's well-being, I guess it's the best way to put it. Like it was a really innocent conversation. I thought that was like really healing for me. I was like, oh, that's great. Like we can move past this. And that's where I was trying to move my life. Then I got a Facebook message from his girlfriend, now wife, and it said, I've seen the video, you stupid whore, your crackhead father <laughs> and you like can leave my husband alone and, and like all this shit that I was like, are you kidding me? I never reached out to him and that video is still in existence like you gotta be fucking joking
1: yeah if she's seen it then that means that she he kept has it. seen it
3: so i said to her in the very very nicest way possible and i was really proud of myself as how far i'd grown and i said that's great thank you for your thoughts <laughs> However, I just want you to know that you have kitty porn in your possession. Yeah. You have a child together and a family. I hope no one ever finds out about it. Yeah. And that's what I wrote. Because that's what's true. And that's what really bothered me, is that it's still fucking out there. Now it's not something to me that's like, oh, okay, a couple of guys saw this video and that's cool. It's like, why did you see it? Why does he he still have it? And I would never call the police, but what if something were to happen where the police came to your house and that was found? (laughs) Insane. Totally insane. It was like all that shit came flooding back. And, like, a week or two later, he, again, Facebook messaged me. "Um, Yeah, I'm really sorry if she had said bad things to you. That was it. And I said, I'm just really sorry that someone that I don't know is tarnishing my name. And I've seen intimate videos between me and you that have happened so many years ago. Can you please get rid of that? He's in term blocked me on Facebook, tried to add me as a friend, said, hey, I don't know what happened. We're not friends anymore on Facebook. Did you block me? And I'm like, no, I think your wife did. <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm just to the point where like, I would never want to see him again and face to face ever. And just because of the awkwardness of it. I don't
1: blame you. (laughs) It sounds like you've you've come out of this okay.
3: I totally have. And that was like my weird thing about talking to you is even the anticipation of talking to you has had me like think about some things and be like, you know what? I get it now. Because I haven't thought about this in a long time. But it feels really good to talk about it to get it off my chest as somebody that's not going to be judgmental or have some insight of what's going on. Because when I look back at it, there's a weird, like, was this like grooming a child? And it's not like he did that with anyone else. And I know where he's at today and he's not like that. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, it's a very weird thing to comprehend. That's totally creepy when I think about it right now. Like, that totally is disgusting to me.
1: I mean, you're underage, so it's clear cut. But it's not black and white when it comes to your emotions, his emotions. It's not this person is only taking advantage of you and abusing you, there was feelings there. There was emotions there. And that's the muddy part of all of this, right?
3: Yeah, definitely the muddy part. I mean, it just, it does sound like some of this stuff sounds so creepy to me, but then some of the stuff doesn't. Yeah, I mean, we did have like a great emotional relationship. It was just... What an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old think of are way different things. Yeah. You know, when it comes to, like, sex aspect of it. I started to be very reckless with sexual encounters when I got to college and even after we broke up. Mm -hmm. Because I had had sex. I had had all this crazy sex, you know, and I know positions and I know things that other girls don't know. And it's not like that would make me, like, slut. I felt confident in having sex, especially in college. I was like, I'm going to rock this guy's world. And I wouldn't get off because I didn't even know what that was. And I'm sure my fiancé, his name is Justin, too. We have a great sex life. And I sometimes I attribute some of those things things like to this guy this guy taught me how to do this stuff just Mm. totally creepy and weird but I found that out after the years who I am and made me realize that there's just certain times where some people might get together and there is an age gap but they might be good for each other for whatever reason and maybe you know some moms too that have their daughters that are dating an older guy. I mean, it's, you know, it is about sex most of the time. (laughs) I'm not going to lie, you know, but there is also some kind of emotional attribute to it. And, you know, everyone has their story and that makes them who they are and can be a bad story it can be a good story but you know there's some people like me that look at that as like a a growing point and not something that you know I can look back and I can look back fondly on for most of it you know it wasn't all bad. at that time it just it was what I considered someone that loved me and what I was going to do for them, you know? That is creepy.
1: <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I think this will be a good episode for some parents to hear, to understand the perceptions of teens. Next up is Tiffany. Tiffany and I recorded this a long time ago, so apologies for the long delay on getting this one out, to
4: All right. My name's Tiffany Mertlick, and I live in Gilbert, Arizona. I was raised in Washington State in the small town, Puyallup.
1: When does your story start? Is it when you moved or before you moved?
4: No, it started when I was 13 years old. But I guess he came into my life when I was about four years old. My dad and him were really good friends, and that's when I got introduced to him. And so he was kind of like my fun uncle, I would say more, because he was around a lot growing up. And so just being in therapy and a lot of different things, I've learned that he probably started grooming me from a very, very young age.
1: In grooming, you're already kind of giving me the idea of it's getting you used to Probably inappropriate touch, getting you used to whatever his horrible plans are. Right,
4: right. The uncomfortable talk, being very touchy, but thinking, oh, it's just the fun uncle. He would never do anything to hurt me. When you're a kid, you're just thinking, well, my mom and dad are friends with him. They don't want to hurt me, so why they would never put me around a stranger dangerous situation? So you just think nothing of it. Yeah, and. When I got a little bit older, he got married and had kids and I was the babysitter. And he would always pick me up without his kids or his wife around. And the drive was about 45 minutes to an hour to his house. So he lived quite far. And I remember it first started out with just inappropriate talk of, I didn't think it was at the time. Cause I'm. 13 years old, but how's school going? Do you have any boyfriends? Have you kissed anyone? Like stuff like that. That at that age, I was uncomfortable to talk to my parents about it. I didn't want them to know any of it, but he's the fun uncle, or I'm comfortable around him. He won't judge me or tell my parents that I kissed a boy or I have a boyfriend or whatever. And so I would tell him. And I don't know when it got super inappropriate with the things that he would ask me. I just remember being uncomfortable, like, why are we talking about sex? Why are you bringing this up to me and being super uncomfortable? Why are you talking about my body? I was a 13 year old and I developed really early. So he would always make comments about that. And I remember always being very uncomfortable, but thinking, well, he doesn't mean to hurt me. Maybe he's just, he doesn't know that it bugs me or whatever. Then it got to the point where one day he pulled over the car and he grabbed my breast. I froze. Like, I didn't fight. I just froze. I didn't even know what was going on. I just sat there like, this can't be happening. It's not real.
1: I think a lot of people would do the same because you're so shocked at the absurdity of the situation and we're always so polite and try to just dismiss other people's actions. And you're young. He's the adult. Yeah. He's in in the power role right now.
4: Oh, for sure. And I think at least when I was a teenager, I thought that I was grown up. I was an adult. I could make good choices as an adult, but I look back and I see my little kids and I'm like, you're 11 and you have no idea about anything, but you think, you know, everything. So I just think, man, if I, maybe if I didn't think that way, I wouldn't have, you know, let that happen. But I just thought that I could deal with it. So that was the first time that he did something to me.
1: you didn't say anything to your parents about it or anything at that point.
4: No, I didn't say anything. I didn't tell anybody. I was mortified. I was scared. Well, the other part of it was, I remember when he dropped me off, he paid me a hundred bucks for the night. And I remember like, I didn't count it when he gave it to me. I counted when I got in the house and I'm like a hundred bucks. That's a lot. I've never been paid this much before. And I've babysat just as long, if not longer sometimes. And so I was kind of thrown off by that. And being bullied, like I was bullied in junior high by the boys and the girls. Looking back, I'm like, why were they so mean to me? But they just always picked on me. And he used that as a way to get to me. Kids tell you that you're a slut. I've never kissed a boy. So I don't get where they got that from. I had never had sex with anybody. Like, anything like that. But I'm in seventh grade and all these kids are bullying me, calling me a slut and a hoe. I struggled for a long time. And I didn't tell my parents any of this either because I didn't want them to think that of me or be mad at me for some reason.
1: Because you can't just say I'm being bullied. Well, what are they saying to you? And now you have to reveal ridiculous accusations, but then are they going to question? Yeah.
4: Right. I never even really admitted that I was bullied until now, until I went to therapy and dealt with being molested. I never said it because I felt like that didn't really happen. How could people be that way? Because I'm not an insecure person to say. So that's why I could never understand why they would pick on me. I wasn't Totally unpopular. I didn't. I had some friends, but then there's the two main groups in junior high that just kind of ruled the school or whatever that targeted me. I didn't babysit for him for like a couple of weeks, just thinking, I don't want that to happen again. And so, of course, my parents are like, Well, he wants you to babysit, so you need to go. You need the money, or you know, it's good for you. You know, my parents always taught me how to work really hard and so i was a babysitter that goes to the house and i clean up the house vacuum do the dishes fold the laundry if it needs to be done so i go again and nothing happened on the car right there so i was like okay maybe think maybe he isn't going to do anything i didn't want to bring it up because i thought if i bring it up then maybe he'll think that's okay and on the way back again I remember the talk was very uncomfortable and very sexual, but I can't remember what he said. And he pulls over the car and he puts his hands down my pants and he pulls out his penis and he's touching me and touching himself. And I'm just sitting there like this cannot be happening and then being bullied and called a slut and a hoe and all that just compounded like oh my gosh maybe this is what I am why why am I this I don't want to be this type of a feeling
1: yeah it's so ridiculous that you have to counter these thoughts of this is somehow your fault or this is somehow you when right you're just a little girl trying to babysit that's it
4: right 100% and he uh, then again pays me really well and makes the comment along the lines of it was a good time tonight thank you and pays me a lot more than just a normal babysit and that clicked in my head like he's paying me for sexual favors thinking as a kid but I didn't want it and I remember the shame and the guilt of I can't tell anyone then he'll just tell them that he paid me And so then it's back on me like, oh, you are a little 13-year-old slutty girl, you know, doing stuff to grown men for money. And so I didn't tell a friend. I didn't tell anybody. I just kept it to myself and just dealt with it. I'd go try and stay away from him as much as possible because he'd always stop by my parents' house all the time. Cause he was a painter, he owned his own painting company. And so he would stop by all the time and I would avoid him. And I started getting out of babysitting whenever he would ask, but there were the few times I would still have to go. And it started getting to the point where he wouldn't wait until we were in the car alone and pulled over his wife wouldn't be home on time from work for me to babysit and we'd be early so he would take me in the laundry room and lift up my shirt and suck on my boobs and rub himself up against me or pull me my backside to him and stick his hand in my pants and I remember always being so flushed just so embarrassed and it was that laughter of like please stop why are you doing this I want to cry but I don't want to embarrass myself but why am I letting him do this to me and I could never wrap my head around that you know my parents always tell me don't ever let anyone touch you nobody should touch you and I'm thinking well why am I letting this happen but at the same time I'm thinking nobody will believe me or they'll take his side
1: because he's the adult And,
4: and I'll be the one in trouble so I was Horrifying to say anything. And so the years went on, and he started to get where I don't know if it's because I got older, but he started doing it where it would happen this time I babysat, but then the next time he wouldn't touch me. Where he would go two times, I babysat, and he wouldn't touch me. And then the next time he would, he'd kind of spread it out. When I turned 16, I was like, I got a car, I got a real job. So I was like, good. I don't have to babysit him. Let's just put it in the back of my mind. I'm not going to think about it. But at that time, when I was 14 and 15, I started dating boys and I started having boyfriends. And a lot of it was to protect myself because I thought that if I have this boyfriend, I'm not obviously not going to cheat on my boyfriend. So maybe he'll leave me alone because I have a boyfriend and, you know, you don't want to make me cheat on my boyfriend, which that never stopped him at all. It just made the conversations more uncomfortable of him asking what I do with my boyfriend and things I could do with my boyfriend. And it's just that feeling you get when you're watching a movie, like with your parents and there's an uncomfortable scene on the TV, you're just like, oh, do we say anything or not? Or just be quiet about it. Yeah. I don't know why I ever let him get to those conversations. I look back and like, oh my gosh, I was just a dumb kid. Not stop it because I knew it was wrong. And I knew it was inappropriate, but I didn't know how to make it stop.
1: And he sounds like he really knows how to manipulate.
4: He does. There was another girl that was also the other babysitter. And I know that he was doing the same thing to her that he was doing to me. Mostly by the comments he would make about her to me. He never specifically said, oh, I touch her too. But he would talk about her body and just how pretty she is. And I thought, well, I know that you're probably doing that to her. And now that I can talk about it, I have found out that he was doing that to her. But she has never told anyone until now and is still really struggling with it.
1: But you guys came together and talked and and confirmed that this guy was a total pedophile and and rapist, right?
4: Yes. Oh, yeah. So much has come out since me actually coming forward. (laughs) So 20 years later, I was 17, and I started doing the party scene, the drinking, smoking weed, just partying, being a fun teenager, living fun high school years. I liked being high or drunk because I didn't have to deal or feel. I didn't have to feel any guilt or shame. I could just be happy. And my parents found out that it, I was smoking weed and they pulled me out of school and sent me to the community college. And they're like, you're not going to be around those friends anymore." the funny part was I was like, I get good grades, you know, I can party, but I still get A's in all my classes. So it was kind of a fight, but they pulled me out and I went to the community college, which opened up my time for work. And my mom's brilliant idea was to have me go and work for Bob for his painting company. And she wanted me to learn real work, manual labor. And so I begged not to, but her and my dad just felt like you're just doing this because you're lazy. You're a teenager and don't want to work hard. You're doing it. And so I started for him and he would have me alone in his box truck. And so it would be the same thing of uncomfortable talk, but I'm a lot older now. I'm 17, thinking that I'm 25 years old, I'm so such an adult, and he would talk like that to me, and still, I'm super uncomfortable, I'm like, why are you doing this? And so I started to avoid him, I'd make my mom take me to work, so I wouldn't have to see him as much, or be alone, because there's other workers where we would be painting. I remember working on one particular job, and it was brand new condos, and there were so many of them. So what he would do is he'd put me in one condo and then another worker in another one. And he would come in and he'd pin me against the wall and he'd pull up my shirt and touch my boobs and stick his hands down my pants. And I'd go home and bawl to my mom. like, I can't do this. I can't work there. Please, I don't want to go back. I'll get any job anywhere. Please don't make me go back. And my mom thought then again that, I'm just being a delinquent teenager that's lazy, um, just wants to party or smoke weed, and I don't want to work hard. And now my mom feels so bad that she didn't believe me, but that went on for about a month. you were at that job and then the nail in the coffin was Bob one day introduced me to his friend that is a grown adult that has kids and a wife and he was making the comments of, like, I should go with his friend. Bob owned me or something and could give me to this other man to do sexual things to me. And I was done. I went home and I never went back. I didn't care. I'm what my parents said. Like, I refused and never went back to work for
1: him. I'm always very skeptical when I hear about some Satanic child sex ring or something. But when I hear something like this, I think, no, that's exactly what he was kind of doing was trying to exploit you and other children to a ring of his friends.
4: Exactly. Some of the uncomfortable talk would be him and his friends going to Vegas and going to the strip clubs and hiring escorts and things of that nature. So on top of that, like, he did always pay me really well, and he would make little comments of, well, I'm paying you really good because you're good to me, like type of comments. So that just made me feel even more of getting paid for sex, that I'm a prostitute now because he's paying me for all these sexual favors that I don't want to do. But I just thought if I tell somebody, that's what he'll say, that I wanted it, that he paid for it, so it is my fault.
1: He gave you money, you accepted this gift, this money, and you went along with it, whatever it is. But again, it's the whole, you were 13 when it started, and he's the adult. This is totally statutory. There's nothing right about the situation, but by kind of making you an accessory to the crime, he's like making the victim an accessory to his own wrongdoing. It's just another way of him manipulating you and it's disgusting. Right. I'm sorry.
4: Yeah. So 18, had a boyfriend for a really really long time. When I was 19, I met my husband that I'm married to now, and we met in May of 2004. And here's the big kicker is that I grew up Mormon. I'm still Mormon. I'm still active in the church. So also on top of being mormon me being molested for that long i had that guilt of i did something wrong the law of chastity you're not supposed to have sexual relations until you're married well that was taken away from me when i was 13 years old and i didn't even want it to happen to me so i just didn't care anymore after he started molesting me i was like well i guess i'm in trouble and eventually I'm going to have to confess my sins and carry that that was my sin. And so when my husband proposed, I knew we're going to get married in the temple and I'm going to have to go in for a temple recommend interview and I'm going to have to say what happened to me. And I was, I was terrified just because I know that it's so frowned upon and Sometimes they'll say, "Well, now you can't get married for a year. You need to go through repentance, and it can be a long process." And I didn't want to tell my fiance, "Like, hey, this happened to me," because I didn't want him to leave me and to think, "Oh, you're just some, you're dirty now, or you're used." I just had every thought wrong could happen. For my an interview, and I start out. Bawling because I can't even say it without crying, and tell him I was molested. I let someone touch me for starting when I was 13, and he just stopped me, and said I don't need to hear anymore. And I'm like, well, I did other things too when I was a teenager. And he's like, no, I don't need to hear anymore. I think that you probably did other things because you had that horrific thing happen to you when you were 13. So he didn't want to hear anymore. He talked about me. Okay, you can go to the temple. I'll sign off your recommend. You're good. Go to your stake president. It's a two-step process to get a temple recommend. After that, I knew after that interview, I was going to have to tell my husband because her fiance at the time, i don't to have to tell him because my eyes are bright red. I just been falling. He's going to be able to tell i am been crying. And that was a whole other crying just crying telling him and he was pissed but it wasn't at me it was at him and that was probably the first time that I felt like oh my gosh somebody believes me
1: somebody's in your corner yeah
4: somebody believes me it's not my fault but at the same time I was I Bob to find out that I told someone because he's gonna tell him that he paid me, so it's really my fault because I couldn't admit that part. I didn't want him to know that because then he might change his mind and think that it's my fault. So I didn't tell him. And he's like, have you told your mom and dad? They need to know. We need to go to the police. And he just thought, no, they don't know. I don't want to tell him. I don't want to freak him out. I don't want them to be mad at me that I never did tell him. So I was like, no, I, You know, I'm just going to hold off. I'll go to the state president and see what he says. So I go to the state president for the second part of the interview. And I tell him now that state president had been in my life since I was a little girl, like in first grade. So he knew me, I knew his wife and his whole, all his kids. And so we knew each other really well. And I told him about being molested by Bob and he was, horrified. He felt so bad that he had no idea that was going on and that he wished he would have known so he could have stopped it. And he actually asked the name of who it was. The first bishop didn't ask who he was or if he was a member or what, where this state president asked. And I told him, yes, he's a member of the church. This is the ward that he's in. I don't know the stake. And he goes on, well, I'm going to contact the state president, the state president, just saying, it's not your fault. I'm so sorry it happened to you. Pretty much what everyone says to you when you tell them, you know, hey, I was molested. He said I needed to tell my parents. And I was horrified. I was so scared. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to go home and do it. I can't dwell on it because then I'll never do it. And so my dad wasn't home, so I just I told my mom, and she broke down crying. She was so mad at him for you know, and at herself for letting him around me. And she goes to confront Bob and his wife, and drives to his house, an hour drive, and him and his wife are both there, and she just calls him out, and he of course denies it. And his wife just stands there and doesn't say a thing. So, my mom later on comes back. I don't know how long it had been. She wants me to go to the police. And I'm scared. I was like, I don't know if I want to do that because then more people are going to know. If more people know, then his side will come out that he paid for it. So, it's then thrown back on me and it's my fault.
1: And also, you don't sound like you were ready to tell anybody, but more or less forced to say it because of your religion and Mm -hmm. this whole process. You know, so it's like she's telling you, we got to go to the authorities and and you're not quite to step two yet in your own emotion and and mental abilities to embrace this new situation you're in.
4: For sure. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, mom, don't tell anybody. I didn't want her to tell her friends or my whole family. Like I didn't want grandma to know aunts and uncles. It was just a private thing. Up to last week, I had never talked about it with my dad. He never said anything to me about it for 20 years. And I knew that he knew about it, but I just, me and my dad were so close that I didn't want to disappoint him. And I carried that for all those years thinking he'd just be disappointed in me. And I couldn't tell him cause I couldn't see him cry. Cause I felt like if he cried or was upset is because he was disappointed in me. My mom only told him and I knew that my mom had talked to him about it, but I had never talked to him about it. And so I go have an appointment with Bob Steak president. And so I go and meet with him. And he tells me that he starts out like, I have talked to Bob and gotten his side of the story. Oh, geez. And I was horrified, like, oh, my gosh, great. You're not going to believe me. Just thinking, okay. And Bob says that it's not all his fault that you participated in it. And I'm bawling at this point, thinking, great, I'm caught. I'm in trouble. No one's going to believe me. My fiance is gonna leave me and I said by I was 13 years old when this started and he says well I think we should just drop it at this because I don't want to ruin his family just because of you that will wreck a whole family and right now it's just you saying it we have nobody else coming forward and so I just left so upset. And I look back and I'm like, I should have punched him in the face. I should have wrecked his office. How dare you tell me that it's pretty much my fault and that you don't believe me and you're going to pick a pedophile over a child? It was just so sick and wrong. And he failed me. I was just like, okay, I'm done. I'm never talking about this again. I'm over it. Who needs to know? No. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. So I just locked it up and didn't deal with it. Because it was in Washington where it happened and I moved away to Arizona a year after I was married, I knew I would never have to run into him or see him or be around any of his family or anything. Every once in a while, it would bug me or something would come up and I'd think about it. And I still, as an adult, had that shame of, well, still you know, believe me, they'll think that he paid me, so it's my fault. You know, I asked for it because I got paid for it, and I still could never tell anybody that. Probably about 10 years later, and my mom calls me, and she says, I got a phone call from a bishop about Bob. She said... Somebody else came forward. And they want to know if you want to come forward too for
1: the church court. I'm sorry, but I can't stay <laughs> quiet anymore. Why is there a church court? This should go to the police and this guy should be arrested. He should be flattened down on his face with a cop's knee in the back of his freaking neck. There should not be any sort of mediation moderator before it goes to law enforcement. I just, I hate that. But. I'm sorry. Go on.
4: Uh, I, I 100% like agree with you. And I just thought, I live in Arizona. That's in Washington. I'm not going. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to bring this up again. He'll just turn it around on me. I already went to the one state president. And he said, whatever. We're not going to do anything about it. So I just thought, no, I have two little kids at home. I'm pregnant. I am not about to fly there and open up that can of worms. And I look back and I'm like, dang, I should have gone up there. I should have stood by that girl. I should have gone to the police with her, but I didn't do that. So I just kind of shut it away and dealt with it. I could talk about it with people that I knew didn't know him or didn't know my family. I was very uncomfortable talking about it with my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, grandma, anybody. And so when the Me Too movement came out, in the big hashtag and people saying me too and their stories and a lot of the ones that would come forward were in their 20s when something would happen to them and i just remember being like i'm a victim too but i can't say anything where i still felt very alone like is there anybody else that this happened to or is it just me because you hear the random people but I didn't realize till now how rampant it is and how one in four girls are molested. I didn't know it was those statistics and all the feelings came back. So October, the me too, I started hearing it, seeing the hashtag November and December ate at me. I got all these feelings back of it happening. I would have nightmares seeing it happen to me again. I wake up in a panic and i just felt depressed and so stressed out about it i was driving my kids to scout my boy and i had a seizure and i wrecked in a car and they did a bunch of tests and nothing was wrong and so they say because of the stress that i was under from that situation and then just being a mom being tired, Christmas is coming, all of that, just my body just shut down and couldn't deal anymore Was the diagnosis. And so my husband's like, you got to go to therapy. You know, you can't deal with it. You're not dealing with it. It's time to deal with it.
1: And it's so hard for him to probably say that because it, it can come off really poorly. Like, right? you, know, you got a problem, you need to deal with it, but it's, I care about you and I want you to get help.
4: Oh, for sure. And one thing about my husband is that he saved me because if I didn't marry him, I probably would have continued with the drinking and the drugs and who knows where I would have been. But he was my rock. He was going to push me to my potential and give me a family and help me to want to be better than just numbing that pain of dealing with it. And so I went to therapy and it changed my life. She changed my life. I can finally say it's not my fault, that it's his fault. He's wrong. I can shout on the top of the roof to everybody that Bob did this to me. He's a pedophile. And I want everybody to know it. I have no shame anymore.
1: And you shouldn't. You really shouldn't. But I know it, it takes steps to get there. You can't just decide one day i'm not a victim anymore it's not that easy and you need no. you need support you need to counter that negative logic that you've been telling yourself your entire life because somebody else victimized you it takes time it's not easy
4: and that's one thing that i've learned through this whole process is there are way there's so many other victims out there that they still carry that guilt and that shame with them. So they can't say anything or they're too scared to say things. And until you get that help or the support that you need, you'll never be able to. It's not something that you just get over or people will say, well, that was a long time. Are not you over it? It doesn't really work that way. I wish, I wish it could have just been a switch like, Hey, it's not my fault. I'm over it. Whatever, I'm not going to do anything, but it's fine. And so I looked up the statute of limitations. In Arizona, there are none. Criminally, they'll charge them. If you come forward at any age, time, they'll go after them. In the state of Washington, it doesn't work that way. They give you until you're 18 or three years after the last time it happened. So I was like, well, that sucks, but I could go after him civilly, but he has nothing. He has no money, he has nothing. But I still was like, I'm going to file a report because maybe at some point another girl did or something was said somewhere or whatever. And so I've been in contact with a detective up in Washington and he's working on the case. And I've also reached out. And I've found other films of his and one girl was very open and told her story and she'd come out to her bishop, her parents, and to Bob and his wife, Karen, two years before it started with me, which makes me sick to think that it didn't have to happen to, happen to me. It didn't have to happen to the girl after me or the other girl or the other girl if that bishop or those parents would have said something. But I feel like a bishop that's an authority has that responsibility to go and tell, just like a firefighter, a police officer, a teacher, a counselor, they need to tell, period.
1: I have a question, is is he still married to his wife?
4: Technically, I guess they are still married. But they live in different states. It's a very awkward, weird situation. They stayed married until their kids graduated high school. So just probably in the last three or four years, they've been separated, but they're not divorced yet. So there was that girl that came forward and then the girl that I knew about that I babysat with. And then the other girl that came forward when my mom got that phone call from the bishop. We know her, but. I've reached out to a lot of girls and my fear is that if they're not in the right place, they can't come forward. They don't want to bring it up. Mm-hmm. They don't want their husbands to know if they never told them or their family because they still carry that guilt and that shame.
1: And you were there, you understand the that mindset and it's screwed up. And I just would hope that with so many people coming forward against him, it would be taken seriously. And if nothing right. else, by filing the report, even if the report doesn't go anywhere, it's on file. So then if a future victim accuses him, investigators can go back and say, oh, wait, something's here. You know, maybe he wasn't found guilty in the court of law, but it's a paper trail against him.
2: And right.
1: that's all we can really hope for, right?
4: Right. And I, I believe that he molested his daughter. I have some evidence of that, that I'm not allowed to say at this time, but I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that she can get the strength through her therapy to be able to stand up and tell her story. And so I know that if his daughter can actually stand up and say something, then they will prosecute him in Washington because it's his daughter
1: statute of limitation (laughs) is kind of out the window on that one yeah
4: right so i want my story out there but i want the story of the mormon church to be out there i want people to recognize that there are pedophiles among this church that everyone says everyone's so good and they're so nice and nobody would ever do that they are everywhere and i've heard Not only just me, but another girl from a, she was molested by her stepdad and she came forward at 17, just like I did. And it was brushed under the rug. It was okay. We got it. We'll handle this within the church, whatever that means. And let's not go to the police. We'll deal with it. And then her mom was just like, Hey, you just need to forgive him. He's sorry. And she went off the rails. She started partying and left the church and everyone just thought she was this wild child. But I'm thinking, no, she was so wronged and so hurt. I would be the same way if your mom is against you and everybody's telling you, oh, well, just deal with it. It's your fault at the age of 10, starting to be molested by somebody? No.
1: I don't care what the church is or your employer, whether that be, I don't know, the happiest place on earth or the military or whatever, you're engaged with this organization with the expectation that they're going to treat you as well as you treat them. And as soon as any organization says, we'll handle this internally. That's just double speak for we're not calling the police and there will be no justice at all. That's all that is.
4: Exactly. And to this day, her stepdad still goes to church and is around kids all the time. And it makes me sick because I have three little girls and I'm thinking, I don't want some known pedophile around my kids. I don't care if they am never in a room alone with them. I can't risk it. I, it's just not worth it to me. If it's a 1% chance, I don't care. I'm not going to risk that 1% chance for my, my daughters. And I think that the church organization needs to start protecting the victims and quit protecting the pedophiles.
1: Protect the children. Like Isn't that what the whole point of society is, is to raise our children without being molested, without harm, and going after the bad guys. But as you see, they weigh their priorities differently.
4: And that's the hard part is, church, you're taught that kids are number one, never harm a kid. Harming a child is next to being a murderer.
1: You know, when I hear, oh, we need stronger drug laws, we need stronger laws to show these criminals that they can't get away with these horrible things. And if we don't throw the book at them, then we're inviting people to do more wrong. And I just think, well, if you're going to let a rapist or pedophile get away with their actions, you're inviting more pedophiles to your organization.
4: Exactly. They know they can get away with it. The hard part about molested and being molested, I feel like it's such a dark subject. People hear molested or as a child and they get very uncomfortable. I'm like, well, how do you think it makes the victims feel? Yeah. When you put such a darkness on it, it doesn't make me feel light or feel good at all. Like, why do I want to come forward and be known as the black spot? Oh shit, this really bad thing happened to her. No, let's talk about it. I feel like it needs to be talked about more, but so we can be just as a whole society to have the knowledge of what pedophiles are like, that they groom their victims, that they're not stranger danger, that they really can be everywhere, that they're usually the best people, that everybody likes them, they stick out in the community. They have lots of friends They have a good family because they use all those to hide behind and to make their victim like, I'm the shit. So you say anything and you're going to be the one that they won't believe and you'll make a fool of yourself. They use that. And I don't think people know, really understand all of that.
1: If people do know, if they do understand, you know, Hey, it's hard enough to talk to your kids about sex in general. It's hard enough to talk to them about drugs in general. And you can say, don't let anyone touch you. But if you can tell your kid, hey, here's what grooming is. Somebody's having inappropriate conversations with you. Tell me about it. It's like you're almost staving it off before it even starts. If We can get comfortable with talking about it and not just make it so taboo and so dark. I mean, this is the whole point of my freaking podcast. <laughs> it's
4: <laughs> That's the hard part. Like in the Mormon church organization, you have these young women and young men starting at 12 to 18. And then like, have lessons on it. Talk about it. Let them know that if they are a victim, they're not alone, that you will help them be there for them. And at the same time, the church needs to come out and be like, we're not going to stand for it. We're gonna get you the therapy we need and we're sending him to prison, period.
1: It's such a simple statement and concept, send pedophiles to prison, yet it seems to be so hard to, for them to do it. I don't know.
4: It drives me crazy. Just people also think victims just should get over it. And I'm like, it's not that simple. Your whole childhood is changed when something like that happens to you. I don't think people get that. I had a different childhood because he molested me. I didn't think like a normal kid anymore. I never had seen a penis before until I saw a grown man's penis. I mean, come on, that's not normal. You can't just forget about it.
1: It steals your childhood from you.
4: And your innocence, it's gone. You've lost it. And then you carry that secret with you. If you can't tell anybody for how many years. I know this is kind of going backwards, but my mom is so on my side and she is ready to take him down. Is doing everything, the finding him, finding anybody that knows him or what. He, Bob has actually fled to California. He won't come back to Washington. Surprise.
1: You got him on the run. <laughs>
4: yeah, exactly. But I also have a parent, my dad, that's not so much on my side. It blows my mind that my dad had asked Bob, what did you do to my daughter? What happened? Gave him a chance to actually talk versus my mom. I'm going to kill you. Your pedophile telling Karen, you need to leave him. Take your kids away. So my dad talks to him and Bob admits to my dad that he says it only happened one time and I only touched and sucked on her breath. And she was 17 though. Tells my dad that. And my dad just chooses to forgive him. And I just found all of this out three months ago. It came out. And I was livid. I still am. My dad didn't believe me and he forgives a pedophile. And you can talk about it with the pedophile, but you can't talk about it with me, the victim. My mom has never asked for details or what happened or any of that. She just believes me. She doesn't need all of that where dad you really need all that so I let him have it I just let him have every dirty detail and his comment is if I would have known that then things would have been different and I'm like you know it now you know it now how can you still say we need to forgive him no And he says he needs to forgive him for himself. And I'm like, no, you don't have to forgive him. He's a pedophile. He needs no mercy. He needs to be in jail. He needs to serve time for what he's done to me and all these other victims.
1: I am not a father, but I do help raise my niece. And when she talks about dating boys, and she's even 19 at this point, I get a little protective of her. And I wouldn't want to hear any details of her dating life because that's just wrong in general. Right. Um, But if I did hear that a boy, not even an adult, but just a boy treated her wrong, they're not giving forgiveness from me. And putting it in perspective of just being protective of my own niece or a daughter or a sister or whatever, it just sucks that he doesn't quite grasp the severity of the situation
4: exactly most people that i tell well my dad kind of just says we have to forgive him and doesn't really want to talk about it and oh still talks to him to this day better add that part into it just blows my mind well i did find out totally backtracking i found out that my dad was in contact with him Before me being able to really talk about it, so probably 10 years prior to just this year, I found out that from my sister that my dad was helping him financially and wanted to give his daughter that's 16 or 17 a car because they have no money for a car and she needs a car to get to school and work. Well, I came unglued and told him not to help them he deserves everything that's coming for him it's his fault that he has no money he's a loser his wife's fault for staying with him Mm -hmm. you know he's a pedophile you've had two girls as parents come and tell you and you still just stand with him you know that he's had affairs on you like and you just don't care you're gonna keep your kids around that so my dad just said okay didn't give the car but who knows how much money he's given him to help his family out over the years I don't know because now he won't say anything to me about it because he knows I don't agree at all and back then when he would do that it hurt me a lot because I just felt like dad doesn't even believe me no wonder the state president didn't believe me all these men in my life that have authority over me don't believe me so why would I go to the police dad, you wronged me. You shamed me too. So I tell my therapist this or the detective this, even my husband, my dad and him used to be pretty close, but now my husband can barely stand him because he's just so fake and he can't handle how he thinks it's okay to still talk to a pedophile. It doesn't make any sense because it's not a normal response.
1: Yeah. If I found that out about any of my friends that's going to end the friendship that's going to end any contact I have with them unless somebody wanted to go vigilante <laughs> <Right>.
4: <laughs> exactly so Bob did reach out to my dad I'm assuming he probably did cuz word got back to him that I'm after him and the detectives after him so I'm like good he calls my dad and says you need to get your daughter to stop If she doesn't stop slandering my name, I'm going to take her to court. And my dad has the audacity to say, hey, by the way, he called me. He was really upset. So be careful what you put on Facebook or anything, because you don't want him to take you to court for slander. Uh And I just laughed at my dad, like, you're ridiculous. And I hope he does take me to court. Yeah. Why don't you call and tell him that? Bring it. Saves me the paperwork.
1: Yeah, because then the evidence will come out, and he'll have to admit to anything with a minor in that. And it doesn't go in his favor at all. No.
4: He's reached out to other people that know the situation or know him, and that I know the detective has reached out to him. I know he's trying to cover his tracks, you would say, or hide, whatever. I know he wants it to get back to me and to shut me up.
1: You're no longer that 13-year-old girl.
4: No. And that's kind of where I'm at now. I may not ever get my justice with him in court and get him prosecuted, but if I can help anybody else be able to talk to anybody or change the laws in Washington is kind of where my next step is writing to the Congress and all that because they're trying to change them, but I'd love to be the voice behind it, saying there should be no statute. Girls can't just come forward or boys just, especially boys, can't just come forward by for sure 18 and say something. That's not the way it works. Educate people that if there's one victim from a pedophile, there's usually seven more.
1: That's the first time I've heard that statistic is seven more.
4: My therapist was the one that she told me about. Yeah, if I pedophiles that are prosecuted and caught for everyone there's seven. Which I believe it. I feel like if you ever hear about a pedophile being prosecuted, there's usually always more than just one victim.
1: And usually but, the prosecutors just don't have enough evidence to go after and charge them with more crimes because it's a hearsay, it's a his word against their word, whatever situation.
4: Right. And that was one reason I didn't want to come forward. I didn't want it to be a he said, she said. I thought no one would believe me, but that's also the part that makes me sick. I just think how many 13 year old, 12 year old, 10 year old, 14, 15 year olds really want to come forward and say that about somebody? Yeah,
1: It's so <laughs> unlikely. Yeah.
4: What do they gain by doing that? So the hard part is maybe there is only one victim, but it's just sick how society is like, well, there has to be more than one because we don't believe
1: you. I think of all the true crime episodes where somebody's accused of killing their spouse on little to no evidence. Someone's accused of some murder that it's unlikely they might have committed. And they'll go after that person, just no holds barred, but we don't go after the pedophile. really. No,
4: no. And the victims have to live with it forever. One of the girls that I met, it was her stepdad that molested her up until... She's now 27, and up until now, she's never gone to therapy or anything. And so she's never heard anyone say, it is not your fault. It is 100% his fault. I will go with you to the police to tell. And I was like, you've been living with this for so long. And she still feels like it's her fault and then her family's against her. I'm like, you need to go to therapy. How can I help you get there? And it's expensive. Therapy is not cheap.
1: No, it's not.
4: And that's the sad part is these victims need therapy, but a lot can't pay for it.
1: And not all therapists are equal. You pay, shell out maybe $200 and then you get a therapist that you don't gel with. And now you got to go find another one. And it's all an uphill battle. The deck is stacked against you, but you got to do it.
4: Right. Luckily, the one that I went to, I went to a specialist in sexual abuse. Then again, I was still afraid, even at 33, that I want to go to a therapist and then they end up telling me it's my fault and knew it wasn't my fault. But I still had that doubt in the back of my mind that oh, they could tell me that it was my fault.
1: It's a mindset. You can't help it. I know on my other episode, I was talking about rape and how we consider the attackers feelings we consider their life and that all equates into why we don't say anything and why do we do it it's not logical but it's just the human nature of it
4: right that is not okay period no this guy has been doing this for years and he's getting away with it
1: he's a serial pedophile and And there it is.
4: Yeah. I know he hasn't stopped. I think it may be because he doesn't have kids around to have babysitters or doesn't go to church anymore that it might be harder to get younger victims. But I know he still victimizes young women.
1: It's just opportunity. And if he has a lack of opportunity, he's not doing it. But as soon as he's presented with that, he will go right back to it.
4: Oh, he's all over it. We know somebody that is in Washington that actually still lets Bob come around him and his family. And so my husband called and said, do not take your kids around him. He's a pedophile. Don't do it. The father's comment back to my husband was, well, does he do it anymore?
5: What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
4: Does he do it anymore? Do you really want to find out? Do you want to test it? what are you thinking if someone told me that about some my kids would not be around it. period i would never be around does he still do it well do you want to risk it i'm trying to warn you and you're just like well, only if he does it still how dumb do you have to be
1: you probably don't buy a car seat because it has too many recalls but you're going to test the waters with a pedophile really
4: But I feel like it's a lack of knowledge, and people don't really talk about it. And I think a lot of people, especially in this LDS community, put a lot on that, well, we're LDS. We're church-going people. We make good choices. We would never want to hurt a child. Utah has tons of LDS, and it's the number one place for pedophiles because they can all hide Behind this facade of, I'm a good Mormon guy or woman. I would never do anything like that to a child. And we all believe it. And they know we believe it. So that's why they stay active or be around kids to keep up their appearance.
1: You've gone on the rant that I would have gone on. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's so ridiculous.
4: It's hard for me because I have all this anger and resentment for the church and how they handle things. But at the same time, like, I love the church and they do so much good. And it just frustrates me because I'm like, you guys can do so much better. You could be the organization that stands against pedophiles and lets victims know you are behind them and offer them therapy. I mean, the LDS church has millions and billions of dollars. I'm like, you could offer the women that can't afford it therapy. You can help so many people. You could protect people if you would just believe their story and their truths and what they have to say. But instead, time and time again, you just prove that you always pick the pedophile, always shame the victim. And it has to stop. I talked to one lawyer in Washington at the beginning of all this to possibly go after the church. And he had just finished trying a case about a guy that was a pedophile and to protect himself from getting caught, he would move his family to different states and go to different wards. And so once it would come out that that had happened, he would then pick up his family and they move somewhere else. I don't know exactly how it all came out, but he had moved to like six different states and had 17 different victims before he was prosecuted. And the authorities knew about it. It makes me sick thinking these victims came forward and he just moves and is allowed to do it again because you people want to protect this man. That's a good man because he's married and has kids and a wife. No, but at the same time, the church is very anti adultery. can never cheat on your wife, never cheat on your husband. Adultery, we don't stand for it, but molesting kids. Well, we'll let that one go.
1: And oh, he's got a wife and kids, which are probably in danger because they're living with this person. But more exactly. of, it's more of a danger to break the family up than to expose the children to a pedophile. Okay.
4: It makes no sense to me. And I guess that's where I'm at. Like, I want to be the vocal one, and I want everyone to know it, and I'm not afraid to tell my story example today my one little girl went over to a friend's house so I was like hey I'm gonna record for a podcast today so I don't know what you time we want me to get her maybe could you just drop her off and she's like well what is it about and I said I'm telling my story about when I was molested when I was 13 to 17 and she just looks at me like oh and I'm like yeah and just told her a little blurb of it and she's also LDS and I'm like yeah and you know, the church doesn't always stand behind the victims. They stand behind the pedophiles. And you could feel that she's like, I don't know what to say. This is kind of making me uncomfortable. It was just kind of awkward. And I'm like thinking it doesn't need to be awkward. This is what happened. This is what's wrong. And let's fix it. Let's stand together. You know, and I told her because she's in charge of the young women and there's probably 50 or 60 young women in my ward. And I'm like, I promise you that there's at least one girl in that room of 50 that is being molested or has been molested.
1: She needs to hear that. People need to hear that.
4: Yeah, I would love if they would let me go in and talk to them all. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be scary or gross, but just to hear the feeling of another victim it makes you not feel alone hearing that feeling the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment and that you're alone and that nobody will believe you that you're dirty that you're broke all those feelings that's normal that's what a pedophile wants you to feel so that he can continue to do it to you and to others Maybe instead of learning when I was a kid, stranger danger, don't ever let anyone touch you. It's bad if they touch you. Maybe if I would have known if it happens to you, this is how you'll feel. But it's not your fault.
1: Yeah, it's not your fault. And you have to tell us and don't have that fear of telling us because you're going to have that fear. You're always going to question whether or not you should say something.
4: Exactly. And talk more of pedophiles are usually, I mean, there are the ones that are the strangers that, you know, you hear those horrible stories, but a lot of times it's somebody they know, somebody that's around all the time, be careful about the other people you have your kids around. Cause a lot of the pedophiles need time to groom them. And I don't think parents even know that a pedophile grooms a child. Some do, I'm sure, just walk up and do whatever, but there's always a step and a process and a rituals that a pedophile has that they do to their victims.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad that you said a ritual because it's, it is. It's very much like, like a serial killer. They have an M.O. This is what they do. And it's not just something that happens out of the blue. There's typically a process. I mean, sometimes it does happen out of the blue, but most of the time it's someone they know. It's something that they're very adept at doing.
4: Yeah. They choose their victims very wisely and they work on them for a long time. I hearing my therapist say that, oh, he met you when you were four and he probably picked you out to start grooming you when you were that little. Yeah. Knowing he can be around your family and all of that. Yeah. And my daughter right now is four and I'm just disgusted. And then at the same time, oh, hey, dad, remember you love your grandkids so much. That's what your friend would be thinking about your granddaughter. And I'm sure that would stick in you out if you or, you know, you'd be so mad. But if it's your daughter, hmm. Not so much. Yeah. Can't even wrap my head around it. It's crazy because I feel at the same time with my mom. And my mom and dad are divorced too. And there was a lot in their marriage. The icing on the cake, which my mom had never told me up until now. There was a lot. But when I came forward and my dad would not go with my mom to confront him. My mom was like, I'm done. You're not going to stick up for your daughter with me. You're going to forgive it. Like, I can't.
1: That's a pretty big difference in parenting there.
4: <laughs> yeah. I can't be with someone. No. So, but my mom had never told me that because I didn't want to talk about it. Or I probably back then i had been like, no, it's okay. Because I felt still the guilt and the shame, but now I totally get it. If my husband was like, oh, I'm going to be friends with the pedophile still that lost her daughter. I'm like, no, you can die with him for all I care. Yeah. No, that ruined our daughter or son. It's been hard because I was really close with my dad. It's strange because I feel like I should totally hate his guts. I don't hate his guts. I have no feelings towards him, I guess. There's no hatred. There's no... Real anger is just, I'm kind of dead inside when it comes to him.
1: He's still your father, so you can't hate him, but.
4: I don't know. I'm hoping he can change. I'm still begging him to go to therapy because I believe if he went to therapy and like learned more and talked about it. Mm -hmm. That he might actually learn what a victim feels and how pedophiles behave and his way of dealing with it. He can learn that he's not the best way to deal with it. My mom believed that maybe Bob had a secret about my dad or holds something that, my, that nobody knows but him, that mm-hmm. so my dad doesn't want to get out. So he's kind of sticking by him.
1: I think that he's just trying to have a logical approach to things, and it's not something that you should even bother seeing both sides of. It's something that he just doesn't grasp at all. Because, you know, if he did agree with you, who cares, like, what Bob has over him?
4: Right. The detective still is working on the case. He has found out more information, and he's getting more, but it's a process. Started in February, and I thought, great, you know, I found these couple victims. Okay, we're going fast, but it's kind of been at a dead stop for a little bit. On my side of finding people, but for him, he's slowly picking at it and finding more information, but it's just such a long process. And I just want him to pay for what he did, or I want the girls that he victimized to be able to stand their truth and not be his victim forever and not let him have power over them for the rest of their lives. So we'll still keep searching for them, still trying to fight Washington to change. I know that they have a group that are standing up saying, hey, we need to have no statute of limitation. And I think I heard something federally that they wanna kind of change that everywhere. There's way more victims than we ever thought, And people are coming out about what happened to them 10, 20, 30 years later. They're finally coming forward and then come to find out there's multiple victims after them, too.
1: You know, when it comes to the statute of limitation, I understand that if any crime is so old that it's really hard to investigate it, I guess it's just prosecutors and and law, the system just doesn't want to dedicate time to something that's so old. But even when I think of murder, which usually doesn't have any statute of limitation at all, you have the same problems with that. You have a lack of evidence, you have no witnesses around, nothing. But all you have is a dead body. But in any crime, you have a victim. And I don't understand how one can have a statute of limitation and another one doesn't
4: exactly or just like you're saying we're all about putting away drug dealers and throwing the book at them and they're evil terrible people yet the people that are seeking out the drugs they are harming themselves at the same time they do harm their families because their families are sad but it's not a child being molested they didn't ask for it to happen they didn't want to deal with it forever so i feel like Maybe we should change that and put the pedophiles in the rapist way. And then you hear so many stories of girls that come forward, they go to court, and then the pedophile gets a month or three months or probation or something ridiculous. That it's like, I just went through all of that and telling my story, being on the stand, looking him in the face again to hear that. And I have to deal with it forever.
1: Something I come back to all the time of, we always say rape and murder are the two worst things in society, but we punish other people (laughs) way worse than we do rapists.
4: (laughs) Right. Oh, we totally do. For a long time, I thought, well, I don't want people to know that, know me, that knew me back then. I'm at the point now, I don't even care. I could care less if people don't believe me, because I know that it's true. And if I can help anybody or get more of his victims to talk, that's all I care. People want to shame me; it doesn't affect me. And for many years, I was horrified, of scared, and worried that that would happen, and didn't want people to know. But now I'm like, no, I can tell anyone and. At the same time, though, that's not always the same for every victim. That's not always normal. Sometimes they might go to therapy, but they never get to the point that they can talk about it openly and with everybody. They're still quiet about it or carry something with them that they can't do that. And I'm hoping somehow or some way I can, because I can say that I want to be their voice I want to help them or even if it's helping them in the way of now we talk about it and make it better for all these generations of kids that are growing up in the church because it's not going to stop unless we change things
1: I'd like to thank all my guests and listeners for tuning in So the next episode should revolve around addiction and people struggling with rehabilitation. Hopefully I'll have that episode out in a more timely fashion.